Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Tides of History early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Apple Podcasts. You spent a lot of time over the years on Columbus and his contemporaries. Do you have a favorite story from this period? Is there something that you think kind of encapsulates an individual or a broad trend? From the Columbus period, well, my favorite story has to be about Vespucci. I mean, I also read a book about, about Vespucci, and I was quite proud of it because I actually did discover some new stuff, including that uh, rather amazingly for a man after whom the world's greatest superpower and vast hemisphere is named, he was a pimp. Was he really? Do you think this great America is named after a pimp? And when he was... Young, he was the sort of factotum of Florence. I mean, he was like Figaro, you know, he was the factotum della città. And, and he was the fixer, you know, if you, if you had something shady, you went to Vespucci. And he did all kinds of really sort of dodgy, morally dodgy stuff, including, um, you know, I mean, he was a big channel to um, incarcerated criminals. But the stuff that really most impressed me were those letters from people saying to him things like, um, I, I really like the blonde one, could you fix up a brunette next time? Oh my God. <laughs> so it's obvious what was really going on there. And, and in a way, I think it's um, one of the great things about America is that it is the land of the makeover, the land of the, the second chance. So why not be a pimp and have the whole country named after you? That is absolutely fascinating. I had no idea because I looked I, I, I looked through some pieces of your book on Vespucci. I was just recently doing a project on on kind of Columbus and early exploration and, and financing, um, which is something we can come, come back to a little later. Um, so Vespucci came up in thinking about kind of networks or like financial networks and connections back to back to Italy and merchant banking. Um, but I, I missed the bit about Vespucci having been a procurer. That is that is nuts. Oh, well, I'm sorry you missed the good bit. That's the unfortunate piece when you're reading when you're reading books for specific things and you don't get to appreciate the narrative as a whole, you know, <laughs> No, well, I, I mean, I always tell my students to use the index to find what they really need. So I can't blame <laughs> That's that's one of those uh, that's one of those life hacks for uh, when you're when you're trying to sift through information and you don't get to appreciate books the way that readers the way that uh, kind of straightforward readers get to. Oh well, I don't know if there is a straightforward reader. I have yet to meet one. <laughs> oh, that's a fair point. Oh, hi, everybody. From Wondery, welcome to another episode of Tides of History. As always, I'm your host, Patrick Wyman. Thanks for joining me today. So as you've just heard, we have a great guest for you here today. Uh, he's Professor Felipe Fernandez Armesto. He's the author of numerous books, some of my very favorite ones on this period. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's very good of you to have me, Patrick. Thank you. Hey, it's Patrick, and I've got some really exciting news. You can now listen to our entire back catalog completely ad-free exclusively on Stitcher Premium. If you enjoyed our episodes on the Black Death, on chivalry, on peasants, that great interview we did with friend of the show Dan Jones on the Knights Templar, you can come back to that completely ad-free anytime you want. In addition to our archive, you can also listen to every new episode ad-free, as well as tons of other ad-free Wondery shows like Dirty John, Dr. Death, and American Innovations. 
Plus, with Stitcher Premium, you'll get access to hundreds of hours of original content, audio documentaries, and exclusive bonus episodes from some of your other favorite podcasts. You can sign up now for a free month of Stitcher Premium by going to stitcherpremium.com Wondery and using the promo code Wondery. Then, once you're signed up, just download the Stitcher app for iOS or Android and start listening. That's stitcherpremium.com Wondery and promo code Wondery. Over the years, you've written really extensively about the medieval background to the expeditions of the 1490s. You've written about Columbus. You've written about Amerigo Vespucci. You've written about 1492 itself as kind of a turning point. You've written about the Spanish Armada. What has drawn you to this period, to this particular decade, um, to these people? Well, in a way, I'm, I'm not sure that anything has except, you know, happenstance and, and chance because, I mean, I'm very intellectually indisciplined person. And I mean, I like everything. I, I, again, the reason I'm a historian is that it's the only discipline which encompasses everything else. In order to be a historian, you have to know a little bit about everything. And I, when I was young, I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to be. So really, it was my default position. And I guess I, 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 I started working on the Canary Islands because I thought that the Canary Islands in the 15th century were the sort of fulcrum of the history of the world. They were the first setting for European overseas expansion and therefore, you know, in a sense, for the beginnings of um, the movement which more than any other single movement shaped the world we live in, this movement of the, you know, the ascent of the West, the rise of Europe to global hegemony. And uh, um, it amused me to think of it starting in a very small way with much pain and suffering and over a very long and arduous process in these tiny islands off the coast of, of Africa. And I think I was drawn there also because of Salvador de Madriaga, the great Spanish intellectual, said to me, you've chosen a doctoral dissertation with a good climate. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, you know, the interest in that period really started with that notion that I wanted to be in on the beginnings of the making of the world that we we live in, and I've never entirely deserted it. Although I've gone whoring after all other periods, and I've written these you know sort of huge, indisciplined books on on theory and on the world. Um, uh, well, in a way, I've always remained very specialized because even in writing the history of the entire world, I've remained confined just to one planet. <laughs> yeah, you, we'll have to leave the interstellar explorations for, for perhaps a second career. Yes, I haven't undertaken those yet. So, so I'm still quite specialized, but I've always gone back to that period, late 15th, 16th, centuries. Um, well, because once you know about something, once you know little about something, you can't help getting interesting. It is more we can know a little bit more. That's really fascinating. And it, it, bring, it brings my kind of thoughts back to something that you mentioned in, you mentioned this in your book before Columbus, and you mentioned it in your book on Columbus, um, that the people involved in the last stage of the conquest of the Canary Islands were basically, were, there was a lot of overlap between that group and the ones who funded and planned Columbus's first voyage, that it's essentially the same group of people operating in, in both ways. Yes, that's right. It was a very tight-knit circle of of financiers and kind of organizers in the banking world, primarily of Seville and in the court of the 
the king and queen of Spain. Um, those guys all knew each other and uh, they all had their hands in each other's pockets and, and, and on each other's backs, you know, sort of patting vigorously. At times, of course, they did, they did rather fall out and the, the, the most faithful of them to Columbus, the um, banker Gianotto Berardi, in, in the Italian banker in, in Seville, ended up really being the only one who, who continued to back him through all the ups and downs of Columbus's career. And as a result, he ended, you know, bankrupt. <laughs> and really, I think in a way, regretting on his, his deathbed that he got involved with this guy who, who'd spent all the capital but not achieved a very great return. It's very poignant because, um, you know, we have Berardi's will, his last will and testament in which he... He refers to his daughter and he, he explains how he's got no money because of all the money he spent on Columbus's voyages. And almost the last thing he does is he begs the admiral, as he calls Columbus, to look after this daughter. Mm -hmm. And that's the last we ever hear of her. No, we never hear of her again. So I'm not sure whether Columbus um, discharged that obligation. Yeah, because Columbus still owed him a vast amount of money at that at that at the time of his death, right? Because Berardi died in 1501, 1502, something like that. Well, I don't know. You're, you're probably better at dates. <laughs> I'm an historian. I've got no head for it. Um, uh, my I like the story about T. E. Lawrence. You know, Lawrence of Arabia, the man who led the Arab revolt against the Ottoman Empire in the First World War, who, when he was a history undergraduate at Oxford, is said to have used only one date in his final examinations, which was when the Normans conquered England in the second half of the year. <laughs> <laughs> That's my idea of a good date. So now I can't remember exactly when Berardi um, died, but yes, it was at a low point in Columbus's own mm -hmm. fortunes when he really failed to deliver on all his promises of opening a quick route to China and, and making a pack of money for his... Um, for his backers. And of course, he'd fallen back on the not very, very good idea of trying to make up for the losses by selling slaves, which the king and queen of Spain wouldn't allow him to do because they thought it was immoral and illegal. So, uh, so yes, it was a pretty poor moment, but Berardi picked a bad time to die. <laughs> Maybe, maybe we all do. <laughs> yeah, there's that's a really interesting point there, which is, you know, Columbus was backed by a circle of essentially profit-oriented financiers and court officials who were all, I mean, more or less rationally looking to looking to exploit this this new open world. I, that's that's a really interesting point that you hit on, you hit on that a lot in your in your books on this period. But I think it's something that the general public is not quite as aware of. The you know, I think. The the way that this material gets taught is often is that these were kind of state initiatives that they were not that they're NASA going out there to explore, but they're but that they're a little more kind of publicly oriented than they actually were. Yeah, I'm afraid it's true that private enterprise was way ahead of the state in promoting exploration in the 15th and 16th centuries, and the state played a really a marginal kind of facilitating. Um, role. Uh, you had to have the backing of a king or queen, or in Columbus's case, both, in, just in order to, um, you know, ensure your assure your backers that they they would have some protection of their investment if it turned out to be profitable. But it was all to do with profit and 
was. And, and the starry-eyed, romantic, and we'll say the scientific ways of understanding Columbus's inspiration, and of course the religious way of understanding it, are, I'm afraid, probably false or play a very minor role compared with, you know, the hard-headed, um, copper-bottomed line of the, the, the financing side of things. Yeah, it's a, it's a really fascinating point. It's something that comes out of, uh, you know, a lot of the work that you've done in this period is the way in which Columbus's voyages, the other voyages of the 1490s, were very much an outgrowth of an already existing um, kind of closer in Atlantic world that was itself transplanted basically from the Western Mediterranean in the last couple of centuries of the Middle Ages. Um, and but that was it was a world of commerce. It was a world of really people who had a lot of experience in these kinds of voyages, people who had a lot of experience in financing them in what they could expect to get back from them. And that for, for people like that, you know, it was just a little further out. It was just maybe a little more speculative than they were used to, but it wasn't something unnatural and totally new. Oh, well, what a brilliant uh, reader you are. I mean, uh, I wish all readers would stay attention <laughs> and understand the book. Well, even there, you missed my story about Vespucci. <laughs> I, I did miss that one. This aspect of things. Yes, yes, it is a story of the Mediterranean moving out into the Atlantic and crossing it and contacting new worlds. The story starts in the Mediterranean. It starts with people like Columbus and Vespucci. These were Mediterranean guys. You know, Columbus came from Genoa. Vespucci came from, from Florence. In the late Middle Ages, the initiative for Atlantic exploration came mainly from Italy and Mallorca, uh, and to some extent from the eastern seaboard of of Spain, and it's really, you know, only in the 15th century that the, the, the focus of the story really shifts to places like several places in the, the southwestern corner of, uh, of Europe that actually overlook the Atlantic, and, and they, those places depended for their, their impetus in this respect on input, both in terms of manpower and finance from, uh, well, from deeper in the Mediterranean, above all from Italy. That's that's really interesting because it also speaks to what kind of world Europe was at this point, kind of on the on the cusp of um, global expansion, but how interconnected it was, um, how much movement there was between places like Italy and Spain, um, how much people themselves, but also ideas, goods, money, how money could flow along those same networks too. Um, that that Europe itself was pretty tightly interconnected and networked on the on the cusp of this move outward. Well, of course, Europe was the back of beyond. You know, I mean, it was the butt of Eurasia. <laughs> and, and, you know, the Arabs and the Chinese, and the, they all looked down on Europeans as peripheral barbarians of little interest or importance. And in a way, you know, it, it, being on the margins, being behind, gives you an incentive to do crazy mad things like launching voyages. <laughs> I mean, if you're really doing well, you don't attempt to innovate in such a risky, adventurous fashion. So in a curious way, you know, this, this um, sudden eruption of European entrepreneurship was in great part a, uh, an effort to catch up with greater, richer economies and civilizations further east, with whom they had um, really lost a lot of their earlier contacts in the high Middle Ages and the 13th, mm -hmm. early 14th centuries. It was quite common, you know, for Europeans to go to China 
And Marco Polo is the famous one, but you know, there were, there were scores from hundreds of these guys. In the 1340s, one of them wrote a, um, a guide to how to get to China. I mean, it's just like, you know, sort of the blue guy. Like, it tells you everything you need to know, <laughs> like, you know, where to get a haircut and where to change your camels and, and, and also where, where to get the best prostitutes. You know, it's like everything that the 14th century traveler needs. And it tells you that when you get to China, you have to hand over all your silver, which was the only thing that it was worth taking because the Chinese weren't interested in any other Western products. They already had everything over that. So you had to take your silver. And the guide writer explains that at the frontier, you had to change it for these little funny little bits of paper. Because most of the Europeans didn't have paper money yet. And it's a kind of, yeah, reading that is, is a great moment of, of revelation and humility for those of us in the West, because it reminds us that our part of the world was you know, way behind the Chinese and, and you know, to a great extent behind Islam and, and India as well in this period. And they had to do something to catch up, to break out of their isolation. So all those contacts really disappeared in the late 14th century with the, the fall of the, the uh, Yuan dynasty and the rise of the Ming and the interruption of um, trans-Eurasian trade routes across the Silk Roads. Uh, and all of that linkage which had formerly enriched and informed European civilization had to be restored somehow and the crazy notion of doing it by heading west was a desperate measure I think. It Absolutely. It's one of the things, I mean, maybe my favorite anecdote about this period of exploration is the trade goods that Vasco da Gama showed up in Calicut with, where he shows up with like six wash basins, a bale full of, a bale full of poor cloth, uh, a barrel of rancid butter, some honey and some coral to trade. And it's like it's like walking into an Apple store with with a sack full of pennies and some potatoes <laughs> and expecting to exchange it for the for the best goods that you can possibly get. Yes, in a way, they, the, um, the reason why um, Indian potentates didn't just kill Vasco da Gama was that he didn't seem to be a threat. He was, I mean, these guys, it was like they took pity on them. It's like um, trading with him was like giving a cup of coffee to a down and out on the street. And, and, and of course, the Europeans, it took them a long time. Um, to realize that um, in order to trade successfully in these richer economies, they had to find you know, new products. So, you know, so that contempt that the, the Westerners continues really uh, almost throughout the period, and I think it helps explain why they allowed, why these rich um, Oriental kings and princes allowed the Westerners into their the country. It was because they were poor that they were not a threat. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. 
Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I think a, a flaw in the popular perception of this period as a whole and of kind of the global expansion of the West, which is that it wasn't an immediate thing. Like this took a, a, this took quite a long time to get to the point, for example, where Indian Ocean trade was fully dominated by Europeans. That didn't happen until well into well into the 17th century, well after the establishment of the Dutch East India Company, that most of that trade is still in, in the hands of kind of people who are native to the region for quite some time. Oh, that's of course that's absolutely true. I mean, if you're talking about cabotage into regional trade, it's obviously dominated by native traders, um, really throughout the period of European colonialism. What those Dutch guys, in particular, and to some extent the Portuguese, the British, the French, and the Spanish did, was to add to the shipping stock. I think that was really vital because there was, these economies were so rich and there was so much trade available that they never had enough shipping of their own to handle it. So again, they didn't mind when these strange Europeans arrived, they were kind of indulgent towards them because however uncivilized, barbaric, filthy, smelly, and obstructive they were, at least, you know, they, they had ships that could be used to, to um, increase the amount of trade. And of course, the second big thing that they did was open, they opened new trade routes, which linked these economies with Europe and parts of Africa that they previously hadn't attained, and with the new world. And although the total volume of that was very small for the, the Asians, it was a big thing for the Europeans. I mean, it really did transform their, their economies. And if you, you know, if you go to the Netherlands and look at all the fruits of Netherlandish trade with the East in the 17th century in the form of all the you know, works of art that fill their galleries, all the palaces that line their canals. You can, you can see that this was a really big deal for the Europeans, not so much. For the Indians, the Chinese, no, not so much. Well, that's that's a, that's a really fascinating point because it speaks to just how relatively impoverished Europe was. That tapping a tiny percentage of the existing trade in those markets was enough to transform economies and transform kind of and transform political balances. I think that's absolutely right. Whereas you know, if you read most of these Western histories, you wouldn't realize that overwhelmingly vast. Um, uh, majority of the, the spice trade went to China. You know, mm-hmm. what came to Europe was tiny by by comparison, and um, and you know most of the the world's silver was absorbed by the Chinese uh, economy. The the output of Spanish mines in the in the New World was a, a really important source of new liquidity in the global economy, but it didn't shift the economic center of gravity away from China. China, of course, continued to export to the West more than it imported until the 1860s or 1870s. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, this 
I keep coming back to the idea of Europe as a backwater and the ways in which that that forced Europeans outward into the world. I have a I have a theory on this that I was wondering if I could bounce off you um, since you spent so much time on this period, which is that the the kind of relative impoverishment of Europe, especially in the 15th century, when there's a bullion shortage, there's not that there's not that much hard cash going around. That this kind of compels the development of financial tools. Um, like uh, makes makes letters of exchange or like bills of exchange, letters of credit, um, book transfers, things like that, things that effectively increase the money supply um, that it it incentivizes the development of those kinds of tools. And then when in the 16th century, you get an influx of actual money, that that's when you get more of an economic turning point for Europe. Well, that is a, that, that, that's a very interesting formulation. I mean, I think you're right that um, um Bills of exchange um, supplement or replace um, the money supply with instruments that um, uh, remain negotiable, even if they're not well supported by hard cash. <laughs> you know, as long as people don't know that your, you know, your bank in Florence actually hasn't got the money to back these things up with, they will be impressed by them and will accept them. We all know that you know commerce. Um, really functions on a, a kiss and a pair and a, and a promise. And when Nixon finally abolished the the um, uh, relationship between money and um, and you know hard valuable metal, it kind of you know it was a, it was a it was a liberation. And you're right, a sort of small liberation of the same sort happened in the, the late Middle Ages. Um, I don't know whether I want to talk about a turning point, though. I think we're talking about incremental change. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if there's a turning point. It depends what, you know, in what context you're looking for the, the turning point. Um, but I think a really big turning point, if you're talking about you know, what is it that makes the difference to Europe's place in the world and elevates it from a backwater to a hegemon. Um, I think 1492 is a pretty good year to choose. I, mean, I read a book arguing this because, you know, if you look at the global distribution of, of resources, the thing that makes that real undeniable difference is that European powers get access to the, this whole new hemisphere with all its vast riches, all its huge terrain, uh, all its products, all its people, whereas the Chinese and the Indians and the Muslims don't have that access. So, you know, that's what makes a real difference to the, the global balance of wealth and power. And, of course, it takes a very long time to take effect because, you know, you can't exploit this <laughs> territory all at once if you're a bunch of backward barbarians from the butt of the world. It takes some centuries, you know, really to get the, the yield back from the, the new world. But having the exclusive access, to me, is a critical difference. And if there's one thing, therefore, that constitutes a turning point, if there's one thing that constitutes a turning point, I would say that's Yeah, it's the, the, so the eventual exploitation of the Americas as a source of raw materials, as a source of, as a source of um, just straight up bullion to be to used for exchange in in foreign markets. That that to use is the that to you is kind of the 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 best explanation for the rise of the West. It's bullion. It's timber. It's land to grow food on. Um, 
uh, its um, native labor in the Spanish parts of the the New World, the English weren't particularly interested in native labor. They tended to exterminate or expel it. But 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 native labor, the total amount of manpower, um, the fact that these lands become uh, increasingly densely populated, uh, that they give access to further new um, frontiers. Uh, it's all the the natural products, the furs, the the, um, the timber, the dye stuffs, um, it's just a bonanza. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially for guys who were so far behind in economic terms by comparison with their, their rivals further east up to the time the New World came within their purview. So I, I want to bring it back around to the kind of the beginning of that, to 1492 and Columbus. I mean, so you've spent as much time with Columbus's writings as just about anybody in the world. What's your take on him? How do you think? Like, how do you think about Columbus? What do you? How do you evaluate him? Well, I it, morally, I, I evaluate him quite a low level <laughs> <laughs> um, because he was. Um, I don't know. It's one allowed um, on um, a podcast, which um, I hope will be listened to by people of all. Ages and both sexes. So one allowed to say he was a shit. I mean, that's that's what he was. <laughs> um, I mean, he was he he was pretty um, unkind to the women who loved him. Um, he was, as far as I can see, um, had no sense of obligation to people like Janotto Barardi and his um, his daughter. Um, uh, he dealt, perhaps uh, understandably and inescapably, pretty ruthlessly with the, those with those enemies that were at his mercy. Um, he was mendacious. He couldn't put two senses together. My, um, he had this terrible chip on his shoulder. I mean, he was a man of limitless social ambition who came from a very modest background, and really the great quest of his life wasn't for a new world or for, you know, scientific discoveries. It was for social advancement. What he really wanted was to arrive. It didn't matter to him really whether he arrived in China or America or a new continent or a new island. What he wanted to do was arrive socially, you know, become a great lord. Uh, and he always pretended that he had great lords amongst his ancestors. His real inspiration was his reading. He read like everybody else at the time, he read the 15th century equivalent of station bookstall pulp fiction, which was historic romance. It was these, these stories very often set at sea in which a, a hero who's, who's down on his luck uh, goes to sea and finds an island and combats monsters and giants and the usual fade out as he marries a princess and becomes a great man. Um, and, and that was the tragic tree, which all these early explorers were trying to fulfill in their own uh, lives. He wasn't, at the start of his career, in my opinion, a very religious person. I think that, like so many of us, he only turned to God when things went wrong. Um, so there's, uh, um, you know, there's a lot to be said uh, against him in terms of his moral character. On the other hand, you've got to admire his daring. I mean, you know, to Cross, attempt to cross an ocean which, according to all scientific opinion, 
further day was unnavigable. I mean, it was too wide to cross. You, you would run out of food and water long before you got to the other side. So I think you've got to, you've got to count all those moral failings against him. You've got to give him a big plus for courage. And it really was world-changing courage. Once he got there, of course, his behavior again was rather morally equivocal. But he wasn't the, you know, ruthless um, thwarter of, of imperialism and genocide that some people um, make out. He had a very mixed and equivocal and uncertain attitude to the indigenous people. And at many times he expresses uh, profound admiration for them in, in, in some ways um, exhibiting a, a sensitivity uncharacteristic of his of his era when he beheld their nakedness he really struggled to understand it that his fellow Europeans were and he also you know um, saw them as exhibiting a kind of primitive innocence and representing the the golden age of which classical poets saying but of course his experience of them was very mixed on his second voyage he got there and he found they'd massacred his garrison and that didn't boost his his view of them he ended up as we were saying earlier you know having failed to deliver on all his financial promises having really no recourse except to exploit the slave trade as a way of trying to make some uh, some money and of course he was obliged really to um resort to violence in order to make the colonial project possible. And those are all, you know, serious shortcomings, but if you understand them in the context of his own conflicted perceptions of the natives, you see them as equivocal, not as merely evil. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's a really fascinating point. It's the thing that I really liked about your your biography of Columbus and your, and your subsequent work of him was – First of all, we know a lot about Columbus. We have a lot of access to Columbus's inner life, to, to things that he did, to the way that he thought about things that we generally don't for people of this period or earlier. Like we have a lot. There's a lot that we can know about Columbus in a way that's not true of other people. But the the picture that that shows us is a deeply ambivalent one where you have – where he does things that are – Pretty, pretty strongly not like as you as you put it, pretty morally reprehensible or more uh, morally equivocal. But at the same time, the way that he explains those actions to himself and the way that he thinks about those actions is not necessarily one where he's like a pure psychopath. I mean, he does things that that are not good, but he uh, but he doesn't think of himself as being a bad person. He actually does, of course, a lot of penance. And, you know, he goes rather 
admittedly rather exhibitionistic forms of penance, which he goes around in you know, Franciscan robe, and, and he refuses to take off his chains when the when the monarchs pronounce him guilty of the crimes of which he's been accused. He wants to keep the chains on. Yeah, so it's all rather flashy, rather showy forms of of penitence. But um, but he certainly was capable. I, I, I wouldn't say he was adept at self criticism or humility, but he certainly had moments of those. Um, those virtues. But the really amazing thing about his reputation is that he's gone straight from being hero to villain, you know, with nothing in between. Mm -hmm. Whereas the truth is in between. You know, the truth mm -hmm. has been overlooked. Uh, in the old days, you know, he was the great hero. He was the symbol of um, uh, America for immigrant communities. Um, uh, he was a great American hero. He was our first immigrant, you know, what Michael Dukakis um, called him, and everybody wanted a piece of this legend, and, you know, different American communities invented completely um, phony genealogies which can, purported to show that Columbus was really, you know, Scottish or Polish or Italian or Sandra, whereas, of course, you know, none of those ways of thinking of him in na modern national times um, is, is entirely valid. Now, it's exactly the opposite. Nobody wants Columbus, you know, he's, he's toxic. He's become this, you know, this villainous symbol of, of, of imperialism and genocide and slavery and, and exploitation. And of course, those characterizations are just as invalid as the heroic ones. My own university, you know, has become implicated in this really quite improper and ignorant denigration of Columbus, because at the University of Notre Dame we have some famous murals which were painted in the uh, in the eighteen eighties at a time when a Catholic university like Notre Dame was trying to encourage Catholics who were all at that time you know poor minority groups in the United States. Now these paintings, which are very charming and very much of their period and were designed for good purpose and which in the minds of those who commissioned and executed them show Native Americans in a very positive way. But all of that is the response to what I think is basically a false understanding of the truth about Columbus, which, as you rightly said, Patrick, is very complex and nuanced. If, if anything, Columbus is a representative of the laws of unintended consequences, of the ways in which mistakes made under pressure can balloon outward over time under the right circumstances, that Columbus's treatment of the natives in very particular circumstances or his views about slavery or the exploitation of labor, ideas that he's carrying with him from a Mediterranean context and a specifically Genoese one too, the masters of slave trading in the, in the, late, in the late medieval Mediterranean, the ways in which those ideas can wind themselves into the DNA of a colonial project in entirely unintended ways and entirely contingent and accidental ways. Um, that that has less to do with Columbus's intention or what he thought he was doing than accident and circumstance. Yes, I think most of what uh, he's now blamed for wasn't even an unintended consequence. It wasn't a consequence at all of what he did because, of course, the you know, the, the worst offenses against Native Americans were committed in the parts of the Americas colonized by Anglo-Saxons, whereas um, beyond the Caribbean, where um, 
you know, you can't say very much for the Spanish stewardship of indigenous peoples. Beyond the Caribbean, of course, um, you know, the, the Spanish attitude to Native American peoples was to do their utmost to keep them alive. Not because Spaniards were nicer people than, than colonists from Britain, but because they were operating in a different environment, a different ecology, a different economy, where the natives were actually valuable to them. They needed native labor and native tribute and taxation. So that's why they, they treated the, the indigenous with um, a level of consideration and, 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 and um, comradeship. Neither of those perspectives requires you to see um, either pure evil or pure good. Um, there's yeah, no, no, it's a great mistake, you know, to make moral judgments about um, you know people in different circumstances from ones um, from ones in. I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm I hesitate, you know, to judge anybody. Um, uh, um, I always, you know, think one should be looking at the beam in one's own. I. And it's so facile, you know, to go on about how evil people were in the past. I mean, for God's sake, let's, you know, deal with evil in our own day and allow, you know, the past to um, be remembered according to its own standards and its own values. That makes a lot of sense. Professor, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you chatting with me. This was fascinating, fascinating topics, and, and I really appreciate your expertise. Thank you. Well, it's very kind of you, Patrick, and a great delight to encounter a reader, something which, to judge from my royalty statements, I always wondered whether I had it. Thank you so much. It's been a great treat. Well, thank you very much again. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to chatting with you again in the future. Thank you. You have so. Look forward to it. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Thanks. Be sure and drop me a line if you'd like to chat about the fall of the Roman Empire or the rise of the modern world. You can find me on Twitter at Patrick underscore Wyman or on Facebook at Patrick Wyman MMA. You can follow the show and send us your questions at Tides History. Tides of History is written and narrated by me, Patrick Wyman. The sound engineer is Sergio Enriquez. Tides of History is produced by Leah Sutherland. From Wondery, the executive producer is Hernan Lopez. Thanks again for listening. Until next time, this has been Tides of History. Yo, Trey. Yeah, Kevin, what's up, man? I was just thinking, what would have happened if Drew Brees didn't fail his physical with the Dolphins and ended up playing under Nick Saban in Miami? There's a good shot the Finns establish a dynasty. Tom Brady and Bill Belichick probably don't become goats, and Tuscaloosa doesn't become the center of the college football universe. That's a butterfly effect for real. Hey, I'm Trey Wingo. And I'm Kevin Frazier. We're teaming up on a new weekly sports podcast from Wondery Alternate Routes. As former sports center anchors and current sports obsessives, we're consumed by all the what-if questions that make being a sports fan so excruciatingly fun. If you're like us, then you also live and die on the fallout from every drop pass. Or play call. Intercepted at the goal line by Malcolm Butler. Sorry, Marshawn, still too soon. Each week on Alternate Routes, we'll take a flashpoint in sports, break down what actually happened, then explore every alternate scenario and the ripple effects it would have caused. Follow Alternate Routes on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.